You're listening to the 66 Podcast, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. And today we're going to start a brand new book. Yes. One Thessalonians. One Thessalonians. A very exciting time for the 66 Podcast. Yes, we have been, up to this point, we've been in Ezekiel. Uh, So we're shifting gears big time here. Both of us kind of, I think, got a little... Well, I don't want to say we got tired. A little weary. The Bible. Yeah. Weary is probably a good term. It's just... It, no problem with the book. It's a problem with us. I mean, right. it's it hard. Yeah, it was it's really hard. hard. So I'm really excited to be able to shift gears and to go to something that's maybe a little f- more familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot more familiar. Yeah. I wouldn't say any easier because uh, I think, you know, Thessalonians has some... Well, Some second things to yeah. ponder on. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians is going to be pretty difficult to get to chapter yeah. two, but and there there's some deep stuff. I hope to get into something really good in the second segment that I yeah. think we'll enjoy talking about regarding the end of time. Maybe that'll keep our listeners listening at least through this yeah. first segment and get to the second um, one. That's always something people perk up for. Anything about the end of time. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of stuff to think about, but shorter, easier to manage, easier to outline. Yeah. And uh, so I'm glad to be in the New Testament, and we'll stay here for a while. Um, yeah. Obviously covering First and Second Thessalonians yeah. before we shift gears again. Uh, so let me give a little introduction to this uh, book, the first epistle to the Thessalonians. And the best place to start is actually in Acts 17 which is the story of how the church at Thessalonica was established. I'm just going to read this. It's not very long. I'm going to start reading Acts 17, beginning in verse 1, which says that when they, this is Paul and his companions, on their second missionary journey, so Barnabas is not here, it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, that group. Uh, They had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. If you're wanting to figure out where Thessalonica was on the map or where it is on the map, I can say that of this particular town. Uh, It is currently in Greece. At that time, it was located in the province called Macedonia. Mm -hmm. You may be a student of the Bible and have noticed in 2 Corinthians, in particular, chapters 8 and 9, the churches of Macedonia are referenced many, many times. And they're given to the churches at Corinth as an example of how to give and how to, how to treat people. And you may have scratched your head and thought, you know, I don't see any letters to Macedonia. I don't know of any references to the church at Macedonia. Well, if you are familiar with the Thessalonians and you're familiar with the Philippians, yeah, you're familiar say, with the churches Philippi. of Macedonia. Mm-hmm. And after what we see here and what we know from Philippians, which we have podcasted that as well, you know that these were very good churches that were close yes. to Paul's heart. And so you wouldn't be surprised that they are the churches referenced in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which talk about giving. So this is how one of those churches in Macedonia, Thessalonica, uh, the Thessalonians in Thessalonica, was established. Now I'm back on Acts 17. Let's look at verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So he is, when when, uh, Luke here talks about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, right? So Mm -hmm. Paul is able to prove in the synagogue where they study these scriptures every Sabbath that Jesus is the Christ, explaining it, proving it, using the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. We say Jesus Christ so often when we refer to Jesus that we've put those terms together. It's very comfortable with us. But for them, that was uh, revolutionary for somebody to put the name Jesus with the title Christ, which means anointed one, king, Messiah. He's saying Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth, that's who the Messiah is. Yeah. That's who we've been waiting for. Very controversial statement, especially to make in a Jewish synagogue in mm-hmm. those days. So verse 4 tells us that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and did a great many of the devout Greek, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. 
But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. I don't know who Jason was. He seems to be somebody well-known, or Mm -hmm. Luke would not have just thrown his name out there without explaining who he was. He also seems sympathetic to Paul's cause. Yeah. Um, Probably one of the ones who obeyed the gospel there. So they couldn't find them. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I've heard that phrase a lot, uh, that, that, you know, we should turn the world upside down. And uh, I think we fail to realize sometimes that that was a statement made by those persecuting the church, and it was not a compliment. Mm -hmm. That's not to say we shouldn't use the phrase in that way, but I do think we should know where it comes from. So anyway, they're really having a bad time in Thessalonica, and uh, they accuse Jason of receiving them, which was probably true, and says that they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, which is false, saying there is another king, Jesus. They don't understand the concept of a spiritual kingdom, and they think, that Paul's trying to set up a new government, or they're maybe they don't think that, maybe they know better, but they're trying to cause trouble by making that false accusation. Yeah. So verse 8 says, The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And verse 10 tells us the brothers, so there was a church there by that point, the Christians there, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So Berea uh, was right south of Thessalonica. Paul had to get out of there. It says, verse 2, that he had been there three Sabbaths, so a very short stay in Thessalonica, which leads me to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, This is one of the earliest letters Paul wrote. He wrote it probably from Corinth after Timothy had come back from that bad situation on Thessalonica yeah. with news about how things were going up there. You, it makes sense that uh, Paul would write a letter like this to a church that he only had three weeks with because, you know, he didn't get to finish the job. There was a lot more teaching that needed to be done that right. Paul was not given the opportunity to do. Yeah. So, you know, the purpose for this letter is pretty obvious there's a lot of persecution in the city, and uh, also there, they were kind of shortchanged on teaching. They didn't get enough teaching. You can divide the letter into two parts, uh, like a lot of Paul's letters. Uh, the first part, chapters 1 through 3, is a narrative looking back to the missionary's visit. And then chapter 4 to the end of the book is an exhortation addressing the Thessalonians' problems. So... You know, he has a deal with his visit there because it was a bad experience in some ways, I not in every way. And then uh, he was able to turn the rest of the letter to an exhortation, an encouragement to rise above their problems. So what we're going to look at uh, the first chapter is in this way. We're going to ask the question, what makes a healthy church? And I think that's such a better uh, description of a good church than you know, uh, what's a big church or, you know, what's our goal? Sure, we want to multiply and we're supposed to be spreading the gospel and making disciples, but you can have a big church that's unhealthy and it's possible to have a small church that is healthy. And, you know, there's that phrase, sound doctrine, that you hear a lot in Timothy and Titus, which means healthy doctrine. And so this first chapter of First Thessalonians is all about a healthy church, and uh, we see three things. Uh, the first thing is the encouragement of a healthy church, which is in verses 2 through 4, where Paul says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. I'll stop right there. You can see that they are healthy, and Paul is thankful for them. Mm -hmm. Now, he's been thankful for unhealthy churches, so just the fact that he is thankful for them and prays to God about them doesn't mean in and of itself that they're a healthy church. You know, the church of Corinth was not a healthy church. 
when 1 Corinthians was written, and yep. Paul thanked God for them. But he goes on to talk about those three graces or attributes, faith, hope, and love. And uh, the emphasis here is on the activity of the faith, hope, and love. He calls it the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. When he gets to 2 Thessalonians, he, uh, he brings up these graces or attributes, whatever you want to call them. You see them all over the place, uh, the most famous place being 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mentions those in 2 Thessalonians, but the emphasis there is on their need to grow in those attributes. But here he's emphasizing their activity. So there's a labor there, there's a work, there's steadfastness. He's really encouraging them because of their spiritual well-being, their health, that is mm-hmm. manifested in those three important attributes. Uh, so the first thing, the encouragement of a healthy church. All right, now the second thing you see here is the certainty of a healthy church. I'm going to pick up verse 4 again. We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So I'll stop there at verse 6. And uh, we'll say a little bit. I'm trying to save some things, you know, for the other segments. But uh, you'll notice the language there of election. In fact, King James has the word election or elected. But uh, this translation says that God had chosen them in verse 4. So we'll take that for now. We may talk about the implications of that more later. But for now, we'll just take that to mean, you know, they were obviously in the kingdom. God, If God had chosen them... To be in the kingdom, there was no doubting their position, spiritually speaking. And uh, that was very important for them at that time mm-hmm. because they're obviously under much affliction, verse 6. Yeah. And uh, they were trying to imitate the apostles who imitated Christ through this affliction and needed this certainty in their hearts. And, and Paul is making sure that they have that certainty and that it is uh, that it is uh, solid. Yeah in their hearts. Uh, So you have that. The third and final part of this chapter has to do with the influence of a healthy church. Uh, Verse 7 shows they had a good reputation throughout Macedonia, uh, in Achaia, where Paul is located now, Corinth being the capital of Achaia. I was about to say, it's interesting, you already mentioned that in the letter to the Corinthians, he says, you know, kind of follow the example of the churches in Macedonia. Mm-hmm. And now in this letter, he's telling one of the churches that's a good example. You're a good example in Achaia, which is where yeah. Corinth is. So that's pretty neat. It ties it together. Yeah. I mean, it makes you think, okay, he's already working on this the first epistle to the Corinthians, yeah. even before he left Corinth. Um, but he, he says in verse 7, that uh, they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, the nearby regions, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. We know Paul used them as an example, but it seems like without Paul's help, their reputation was spreading for their faith and their hope and their love. And... um, he, he mentions Macedonia and Achaia, but then he broadens it out to everywhere. And I don't think he's speaking literally. Somebody might come up and say, well, what about North America and the, and the Native Americans? Uh, he just means, you know, like we would say, there's there are potholes everywhere in this road. There's probably a few inches here or there where there are yeah. no potholes, but we're, we're using that as a figure of speech. And so he's saying, you know, the their reputation is widespread. Yeah. You know, and they have a good influence, and they are an example that Paul could point to. Um, so we'll read on here, and this next part is interesting, beginning in verse 9. Speaking of those churches everywhere else, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And so he's going back to Acts 17, before the trouble started, how readily they were accepting the gospel. He mm-hmm. says they turn from God or they turn to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they were a perfect model. The word example here comes from tupos, which yeah. is a Greek word that kind of has an illustration, right? It's a, a cast, a mold into which Imprint, melted yeah. metal is cast. And when it cools, you can pop the the metal out of that cast, and it looks exactly like the cast. That's the same term used of Jesus, right, for being... Um... Yeah, in Colossians, it may have I a believe. it may have a prefix on it in Colossians, but I know that it's the word that is used the, in the Romans. Image. Yeah, in verse fifteen, the image of the invisible God. Okay, that's the term. Um, I know it's also used of the scriptures in Romans six seventeen, hmm. where it's sometimes translated pattern or a form. Yeah. You are obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching or form of teaching to which you were committed. Hmm. And so there's an idea there that my life should be poured into the Word of God, which serves as a mold for me. Yeah. And here they're living out the Word of God, even though they had very little instruction. And Paul can encourage other churches to make your life look exactly like their life. Mm-hmm. And one of the remarkable things about them evidently was their conversion. This is conversion language that we're reading here at the end of the chapter. Turning from God. Why do I keep saying that? Turning yeah. to God yeah. from, from idols God. to serve the living and true God. So they they turn their lives around. And it reminds me of the complaint that was made about them in Acts 17. They've turned the world upside down. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a negative statement, but you could also say what they were doing was converting the world. They were converting yeah. people which does turn people around, maybe not upside down, but it is a turning yeah. that happens not as much as it ought to happen in, yeah. in lives as churches are out there making disciples. Mm-hmm. Uh, very easy reading, just 10 verses. There's yeah. a lot here, so I'm going to save our time here and cut off the reading right here, and we'll come back in a little bit and have a, you know, a couple of good things to think about. Now we want to think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, one really quick thing as we get started, we read down in verses 7 and 8 that Thessalonica has become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Um, he even says in verse verse 8 that the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So they have a great reputation by now. And this kind of helps us peg the historical situation of the early church. Um, You know, I think we talk about historical situation. If we don't know a whole lot about world history, it doesn't mean much. But for the sake of the church, it's pretty important. So this is the second missionary journey of Paul. And it's, I'm assuming, about halfway through the trip. Because when he leaves Thessalonica, he's in Corinth for a little over a year. Mm -hmm. And we know this trip only lasts you know, two or three years. Um, right. So he stays in Corinth for over a year, and that gives plenty of time for the Thessalonians to build this great reputation mm-hmm. for Paul to be able to write even the first letter after several months go by, maybe. Um, and then they reply, and then he even could write the second letter. Like I know you were talking about before we mm-hmm. hit record. He has plenty of time to do that. Um, and this point in the history of the church is is a very transitional time period because we've just recently had that Jerusalem conference where now like Gentiles officially you can come to the church with only what is it help me out here with these as long as you don't eat anything that is strangled stay away from blood stay away from sexual immorality and stay away from food sacrificed to idols Mm -hmm. those four things Gentiles you guys are good we're not going to make you keep the whole law of Moses Mm-hmm. So those are pretty important things to keep in mind. It's still very fresh, new, very difficult for a lot of Jewish people to accept that um, in the early church. So that little phrase, you know, they've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Right. Those are some yeah. of the measurable things they've done. 
since they've turned, they've not become Jews, but they've, you know, they've given up some things that would have been a part of their pagan background. Is at a great cost. Evidently, we'll talk more about the afflictions. Well, throughout the book, it's a major theme. They evidently yeah. were taking some pretty hard persecution over yeah. having become Christians. Yep. Uh, so. A little introductory, you know, um, we don't spend a whole episode on introduction, but it is important, um, even if you're just surveying the books as we are. Uh, And this is kind of an introductory thing, too, the second thing we want to think about here in this segment. And that is, in the Greek, the term is parousia. And uh, in most places, it's translated coming, Mm -hmm. as in the second coming of Christ. Yeah. This is the major theme of both epistles to the Thessalonians, the second coming of Christ. And, you know, the two main terms used to describe Christ's return at the end of time are appearing, which you might find in uh, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, or uh, 1 John 2, no, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, or the word coming, second coming, parousia. And uh, it's mentioned almost every chapter of both epistles. I'll just talk about 1 Thessalonians. You know, we're on chapter 1. The word itself is not in chapter 1, but look at verse 10 where he says that you've turned to God from idols to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. So wait for him from heaven. I mean, he, what does he mean? Coming from yeah. heaven. Second Wait for coming. Him to do what? Yeah, Obviously right. Obviously for him to come back. Yeah, to come back from heaven. So the idea is there, even if the term is not there. And then in the rest of the book, you have it mentioned once per chapter. Uh, here's 1 Thessalonians 2.19. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Mm-hmm. Is it not you? So there it is. In the third chapter, verse 13 so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter 4, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then finally, chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So this idea of of the coming of Christ runs all the way through the book. Uh, Now, whenever we use that word, we probably just have a very simple idea in mind of Jesus descending from the clouds. And there is biblical basis for that. Um, You know, in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the angels appear as Jesus is ascending into heaven. And they say, why do you stare at the sky? Why do you gaze at the sky? Uh, He'll come back the same way that he went up. So we think of that. We think of 1 Thessalonians 4, where he he comes uh, and we meet him in the air. So you have that kind of idea. But there are other ideas that are packed into this word that aren't so, uh, they don't circulate around in our culture today, but they were very important in their culture. Uh, One person said that this word literally means presence as opposed to absence. So, you know, now obviously Jesus is not present in a personal way, although he, you know, I know there is a sense he says, Behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. He is with us, and he's omnipresent. Those are two senses of the idea of his being with us. But we're talking about a personal presence instead of the absence that we have now. Yeah, in the same sense in which he was throughout the Gospels, right? Yes, yeah. Hear, see him, touch him, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. That's right. Um uh, Sophocles wrote this play, Electra, which this word, this concept of the parousia was very important. Uh, he was telling the story of this king, Orestes, who was the rightful king, but somebody, an in- intruder, had come in, uh, an imposter, that's what I meant to say, had come in and taken his throne, and it was dangerous for him to go back. So Orestes uh, sent word ahead that he had died in a chariot accident. 
And then he, in disguise, came into the city of Argos, where he was supposed to be a king. And it's a very clever disguise because he was holding an urn with ashes in it that he claimed to be the ashes of Orestes, and he hmm. was Orestes. Hmm. I don't know if that if you're still following me now. Yeah, I got you. Kind of, so he's, he's carrying hold- his own ashes, yeah. not really, but yeah. he's saying the king's in here in this bucket, and he's the king in disguise. Yeah. So he is absent, quote-unquote. Uh, I had to say quote-unquote because I'm doing air quotes yeah. for Andrew, but you can't see that. We'll start videoing this so people can see never, air quotes. Never. Because I feel like there are several times that you'll do air quotes and then you explain <laughs> that you're doing air quotes. And I yeah. think I do it too. That's not reason enough to video we, this. So. We feel the need to explain our hand motions. My hand motions now, it's so cold in here, I've got my hands wrapped around my coffee cup. You're cold? I'm freezing. Maybe I'm getting sick. I don't know. But I'm sorry. I totally train wrecked your <laughs> Oh, so we're in, a, in the middle so of a Aristes, story here. Yeah. Aristes has got his urn. Supposed He's carrying to be him. his own ashes. Yeah. And then at some point, he announces his presence. He, okay. you know, takes off the disguise, reveals himself to be the rightful king. Yeah. And the people are overjoyed at the presence of the real king. So think about that in relation now. We're in the world. The devil is the god of this world. Um, Jesus is coming back, and he will be you know, revealed. He will be present suddenly and certainly. Every eye shall see him. Yeah. And uh, there is joy and excitement that goes along with that, the appearance of the rightful king, who's kind of, in a sense, been there all along. Yeah. But now the whole world knows it and has no choice but to acknowledge it. It kind of reminds me of uh, the last book of the Narnia books, The Last Battle. There's like a, if you're familiar with any of those Narnia books, you know, the lion, Aslan, you know, he's like mm-hmm. the the true king. You know, he's supposed to be like a figure who's yeah. like Jesus in the books. And in the last book, there's this, funny enough, it's a donkey that has discovered a lion skin and he wears the lion skin and pretends like he's Aslan mm. in the last book. But then yeah. when the actual Aslan shows up, it's that same kind of thing no that you're question. talking about to yeah. where like, okay, this is the, the true king and now he is here. You know, he's been here all along, but now he's like, he's actually here, like mm-hmm. in person. Yeah. He's here. So uh, that, I'm sure that C.S. Lewis was thinking of this concept when yeah. he did it. I mean, that sounds like a very good introduction well, he's work. talking about a very simple... Well, we'll get to Second Thessalonians, you know, depending on how mm-hmm. we define that man of lawlessness. I think that's what he's, you know, with the donkey and the yeah. lion skin. That's kind of some of the stuff he's yeah. getting at, but don't want to spoil stuff coming <laughs> for later on. Oh, I thought you were talking about Narnia. Don't want to spoil that. No, I don't want to spoil that either. Those books are really good. Yeah. Um, I got another question for you if you're done with the appearance. Yes. Yeah, yeah I think appearing. we've... Yeah. Um... How about verse 4, where he says, Brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I get that God, he chose Paul to do all those things for him. Maybe he's chosen the Thessalonians in a similar manner in which he chose Paul. So, how do we answer, you know, could the Thessalonians still have done whatever they want, or at this point, my God chose you to do it? So you're going to do it, you know, to be the word there is elected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, everybody wonders, is this the doctrine of election that I've always heard about that God chooses individuals prior to their birth, even before maybe the foundation of the world to be saved, to be condemned, uh, even Mm -hmm. like you were talking about, maybe to do a specific task. Yeah. And is this, a fatalist way to look at, you know, the soul and where it's headed. Yeah, is that pretty much the question? What? Yeah, is all that, that stuff's wrapped what up. What election the Christian election is, is this, or is it something different? Right. Are we talking about like a chosen to do this certain task to be the example in Macedonia and Achaia, or are we talking about they're chosen like Israel was chosen? Mm-hmm. Like I guess that's that's my question here. <laughs> okay, so. It, or neither. Could I rephrase else? your question? Is it? Yeah. Are you asking? Um, has their life already been mapped out for them? Is it? I guess general or specific? Yeah. 
like a general yeah. calling to like, you know, he's chosen you to be his Ambassadors people. Ambassadors for Christ. Yeah. Something like that. You know, in the you sense know, that, yeah. Or is he saying, I've chosen you to complete this task for me, being the example to the churches around here, you know, and the labor of love and then the steadfastness, steadfastness yeah. of hope, the work well, that, of faith. Okay. Like what? I don't think that's exactly what I was about to uh, address. Okay. <laughs> so sorry. No, no, it's a good. I don't think I've thought of it this way. So it was just in terms of you know we've had this conversation a few times without microphones in front of our faces, but like mm-hmm. you know does God have like has He chosen me for something in particular? Yeah. You know because we've talked about. You and know, okay, so are you talking about? Um, determinism. Are talking you talking about, about determinism, now. where God has determined it and you can't get out of it? You're going to do it, no matter what. I, your eyes are showing me that that's not what you were asking about. That's part of it. That's part of it. Because I have an answer for that. Let me address okay. that first. Right. We know that He's not saying that God elected them so that you know there's no way they could ever be lost. Because if yeah. you look at chapter three, verse five, Paul seems to be describing a period of anxiety for himself when he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, if he meant you've been elected, meaning Uh, you cannot get out of this salvation no matter what you try, you can't fall away, once saved, always saved, the perseverance of the saints, then why would he be worried about the tempter? I mean, he... He already said they were chosen two chapters earlier. That one's easier to to answer than the question that you were asking, which is, was God just asking, did God elect them in a general way to be good Christian people, or did he elect them to go this very specific path in life? Like almost trying to compare it to somebody, you know, who... I don't know. This might like be Paul was too far chosen to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles, right? You know that that was from the very first vision he received. Mm-hmm. That was his role that was mapped out for him. So I guess what I'm asking here, you can't. And it, my hunch is in the negative in response to this question. But can you go to this passage and say, like, you know, maybe God has chosen me to live here and to do this? Or, mm-hmm. you know, chosen me to be an accountant or chosen me to be, you know, a minister gotcha. or this or that or the other. Yeah, well, and we I remember now that we have had this conversation. So mm-hmm. my answer to that is, what kind of God would make a blueprint for your life and then not tell you about it and say, yeah. now let's see if he figures this out. Yeah. He, you know, so Andrew is supposed to be a neurosurgeon. And make lots of money, Got a long but way instead to go. he's a minister, not making much money at all. <laughs> uh, should we tell him? Nah, let's let him keep bumping around, not realizing that he has the DNA to be a perfect neurosurgeon, the best yeah. neurosurgeon in the world, and he's and he's being a youth minister. Yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> that that would be a cruel thing, right? For God to do that to people, I I believe. God is sovereign. I believe that He's chosen certain things for everybody's life. But I don't believe that He has selected our career, wife, number of children, yeah. place of residence, etc. I think yeah. He want, we have freedom being created in His image to make those choices for ourselves. Yeah. Which in some ways makes life harder, but it also shows us more respect. We have more freedom. Yeah, it definitely fits in with free will. Because that's the issue here, I think, is, you know, if, you, if you've been chosen, you're going to do a task, what about your free will? Like, do you have, can you do it or, do, or not do it? Um, and, you know, the, the question is, what does the Bible say? Right. And I, I'd respond, first of all, saying it never says, well, I get, you know, you might, you threw out the example of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. But I think he but even was, that is broad. He's chosen in the same way I think Israel was chosen. You know, like they're to be a light. They're God's chosen people, not meaning that if you're a Jew, you cannot escape the promise of Abraham, mm-hmm. because the New Testament proves. Well, not even the New Testament. I mean, the, yeah, prophets, the Old Testament shows the Old Prophets many, prove that just because yeah. you're born from the line of Abraham, does not mean that you are 
a part of the promises for God's chosen people. Mm-hmm. Now, you might have been born from somebody who's a part of that, but you're not just because your lineage. Um, right. You know, so I think that's how I think of being chosen. You know, like you're God's chosen people. You're a part of the new Israel. You know, you're chosen to be a part of that new Israel. And then when it gets down to the specifics, you know, I think I mentioned to you before what one of my professors at school used to teach us, uh, as Dr. Bailey, he used to say, you know, because he'd have students come to him and ask him, you know, like, does God want me to do this or does God want me to do that? Mm-hmm. And he would ask him, well, can you serve God doing option A? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you serve God doing option B? Yes. Well, then I'm not so sure that it's going, you know, that God has determined which one of those two things is yeah. just the absolute right path. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if there's like the, if you're hungry, the goal is to do what? To eat something. Well, you're going to eat a Snickers bar or a Twix bar or, mm-hmm. you know, anything uh, is else. Is that it? But yeah, those are only two options whenever you're hungry. But, you know, it doesn't matter. You just grab one and you eat it and it yeah. gets the job done. <laughs> So Quit worrying about it. It's a very crude illustration to show that, you know, I didn't mean to take the conversation totally down this road because I don't know if you're planning to spend this much time on it or not. But uh, No, I mean, it's good with me. I don't know about yeah. people listening to this. Uh, well, we just I, mentioned candy, so I'm sure they're, yeah, they're happy with it. I heard that they talked about Twix. Yeah. Uh, here, here, I, here's as simple as I can put it. God has chosen a group for salvation, those who believe in Jesus. Yeah. He has chosen a group for destruction, those who don't believe in Jesus. Yeah. And we get to decide which group we're going to be in. Right. He hadn't decided which group you are going to have to fall into no matter what you do. Right. He okay. he showed cool. and and that's a lot more benevolent than saying I've got this secret plan for you. Good luck finding it out. Yeah. Ha ha. Yeah, you know, and I'm not trying to say there's no such thing as providence. And you know that some this people like Paul are not yeah. reserved for certain things. So yeah, don't, it's not a simple thing. Yeah, I hope I, our listeners don't misunderstand me and say to say, "Look, it doesn't matter what you do; you're just, you know, it doesn't matter." Yeah, I mean, it matters. There, you know, maybe a carrot instead of a Twix. Yeah, you know, so there's a <laughs> something healthy. You can, yeah, yeah, you can serve God eating Twix or carrot, but you know, you probably you know, are going to feel better. I think an answer to that kind of question, this is actually something I remember you teaching uh, from Esther, you know, where Mordecai says, who knows if you've been brought to the kingdom. He doesn't say, God brought you to the kingdom to do this, even though it's pretty plain that he did. But, you know, Mordecai, in the moment, he's saying, who knows? Yeah, because he didn't know. He didn't know. I mean, there was a real chance that Esther could have died doing that. Yep. So if you put if you take that unbiblical point of view, just think about this this how high the stakes are. Yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna live your life like that and say, you know, God meant for me to move to this town, yeah. and it works out horribly for you, the next time you move to a town, you can't say that again. You know, okay, yeah. no, it was this town. I didn't understand. Yeah. But after a while, you're not certain of anything anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's all based on an unscriptural view of the election of God. Yeah. Um, he elected that people are saved through Jesus Christ. Right. And that's not just a simple thing. It's not like it's not like he, he just sat back and said, well, that's all I'm going to do. That was a pretty big deal. Yeah. And uh, he is for everybody, but he's not forcing anybody to go one way or the other. Yep. And I'm, I'm with you on providence. I do believe in talent, for example. I think that some people have abilities... Other people don't, vice versa. I believe mm-hmm. that people have oppor- special opportunities, and they ought to use those uh, to serve God the best they can. Yeah. But I don't want people sitting in Georgia w- wondering if they should have moved to California yeah. or vice versa, because that'll ruin your life. Yeah. Because there's no book hidden under rubbles of dust. Rubbles of dust. <laughs> rubbles of rubbles. dust. There's no like document dusty about your rubble. life under a dusty rubble that you yeah, must unearth to learn <laughs> the secret life plan that God has for you. Yeah, um, that's way off this subject. What he's talking about is, you know, look at what God has done, and look at the people He has chosen, and be a part of those people. Yeah, the gospel is for all, not just for a select few. Uh, so we beat that. 
beat that you subject to more, death. You got any more things? Can I ask you an easy one? Quick yeah, easy sure. One? No, I, I, I imagine it's easy. Sylvanus. Who's that guy? Paul, um, Sylvanus, and Timothy in verse 1. I, I think it's Silas because okay. of who was with him on the second missionary journey. This is the same journey, for example, that Paul and Silas were in Philippi and thrown into prison, converted yeah. the Philippian jailer. If you remember those events from Acts 16. Yep. Uh, you know, people had there. Greek versions of their name. Yeah. Yeah, Luke is, you can look at the pronoun we when it comes and goes. Yeah. In this part of Acts, it's kind of interesting to see where Luke hints that he that yeah. he dropped off the team. Well, you know, just, that, that he stayed in one place yeah. while they went on. Yeah. But I think this is uh, Silas. Um, and, that you know, people sense. had Hebrew names and Greek names and Roman names. Um, like in Spanish, confusing. you know, you got William and Guillermo or John and Juan. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing. Did not realize Guillermo was William. Oh, yeah. Andre different. and Andrew. Okay. Little language. Be very confusing. Language of lesson, right free of charge. Saul, Paul, Silas, Silvanus. Cephas, Peter. Yeah, Cephas, Peter. I that's wonder what Timothy's example. other name was. Timotheus. Timotheus. Well, that, that's, yeah, that's what he the Greek was, I wonder what, Timothy. You think he's got a Hebrew name because his mom and his grandma were Hebrew? Hmm. No, he probably took his father's name. Just got the, okay. I'm just spitballing now. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know the answer to that. Well, there's no other name given for him, so I think you got, that's pretty good. It's a pretty good educated guess, I think. Yeah, well, evidently, Andrew's getting a phone call, so we're going to take a uh, break. That's your phone, not mine. Oh, what's, what's, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a break. I've thought and we too will, much. Yes, don't do that. We've thought as much as we can think, and now we're going to apply. So we like to do this at the end of every episode to take the knowledge that we get and to make it relevant uh, somehow to when the recording's over with, you know, we've not just learned some knowledge, that we've got something that we can use. Yeah. Um, so what we want to do first is look at verse 8. Verse 8 this is where Paul reminds them that the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And wouldn't it be awesome if that's how people felt about, you know, the church everywhere? Mm-hmm. You know, like the word of God that's come forth from you has been so great everywhere that, you know, there's really nothing to be said. Uh, it's kind of letting your actions speak so much louder than your words. I know it's really cliche, but to a certain point, you know, if you have the the fruit, I guess, to back it up, you don't really have to say anything. Right. You know, and people people get tired of hearing words. Yeah. Coming from hypocrites who do not practice what they preach. Right. And so I think the power of action is that you believe it shows that you believe the words. If the words are just coming, we, we see that all the time. Yeah. Um, but when you practice what you preach, and I think tying the reputation came from verse 3, their work of faith, labor of love, yeah. steadfastness of hope. It's important to have, I guess what you're saying is it's important to have a good reputation. Yeah, reputation is important and what you do to build it. And I do want to qualify it with this. You know, there's that old phrase like, you know, preach the gospel. Use words as needed. Or I've never needed. heard that. You haven't heard that? Uh-uh. It's like... Use words as... So... Use words... No, no, it's, it's kind of an anti-doctrine Use words thing, right? if necessary. Okay. You know, it's like Did basically... they say it that way? Or... Because it's kind that's, of... That's how I read it in my head. Yeah. You know, somebody <laughs> being like, ooh, this is really smart. Yeah. Like, I'm, all these people that tell me I have to go, like, actually speak to people about Jesus, I got them now. Yeah. Because They're hypocrites, but I live it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's important to notice why they don't have to say anything here because they've already said a bunch of things. You know, they've <laughs> already, it's not like, you know, we just live right. 
And we, we only do things well, that are sans speaking. Well, look, though, at verse 8, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. Exactly. So that's what you're saying. Yeah. So the the apostles didn't have to say anything because their disciples were saying something. Yeah. like Their, The word was being spread around. Yes. That's my point. Yeah. So just not Paul didn't have to do it in that case. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer, you know, actions do speak louder than words in a lot of cases. You know, uh, to a certain degree, I guess I agree with that kind of dramatic statement. Um, you know, the way you live is just as important as what you say. But we don't want to say, as long as I am, like, living a wholesome life, that that makes me good on evangelism. Like, I don't have to go talk to somebody mm-hmm. about Jesus right? as long as I... Am being or trying to act like Jesus. Yeah. You know, at some point, Jesus people didn't aren't going to get it. Yeah, uh, you know, it may be that they think that they've got it. And, and acting like Jesus involves speaking like Jesus, right? Exactly. Jesus yeah. didn't just walk around silent all the time. He taught people. He spoke to people, and he taught them about who he was. Right. So, and and it's not just um, evangelism, but also doctrine. Yeah. I think this could be used as an excuse not to to preach doctrine, you know. Yeah. Uh, because especially in our culture where, you know, laws and guidelines and rules are thrown out the window and as long as somebody's acting nice or protesting the right. trendy things at the time, yeah. they are good people. And uh, Christian yep. doctrine, you know, you confront somebody sometimes with Christian doctrine and they'll be like, well, that was a long time ago. Well, yeah. yeah, Christ was a long time ago, and you either believe that he is the Christ of all ages and the Christ of all civilizations and all countries, yeah. or he's not. And if he's not, then he's not. He's not God. Yeah. Uh, so, I got one more quick thing to say on this. We got time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I got a little. I got a little preacher story for you here. Okay. I think you'll like this one. Uh, so this book I was telling you about in the break mm-hmm. got this book called. A Time to Laugh When Grandpa Was a Preacher by a guy named Leroy Brownlow. The book's really good. That's the title of the book? Yeah, the book is... When, a Time to Laugh When Grandma or When Grandpa It's not a, a two and a one. It's not a two in one book. No, it's, it's like, like a... both A Time to Laugh because I'm tra- having trouble... It's A Time to Laugh colon. Because Grandpa was not good at preaching? <laughs> Maybe not. It's like a subtitle. Apparently A Time to Laugh was already taken. So we had to put a subtitle By John Grisham? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, go ahead. Book. I'm sorry. Uh, so in the book, he talks about his grandpa. Is He's at this meeting of preachers, like a lunch or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. and they go around the room and all the preachers stand up and say, you know, well, I baptized 40 people last year. And, you know, we've been growing and doing this and that. And so everybody goes around the room talking about how many people they baptized and how many papers they've written and how many debates they've won and all this kind of stuff. And then it gets to um, Brownlow's grandpa and he just stands up and he says, when a man's work, or he's, what is, oh man, I'm butchering it now. He gets up and basically says, I believe that a man's work ought to be able to speak for itself. And then he just sat down. Like he didn't say anything. <laughs> okay. So I think it's, you know, I think kind of, which doesn't mean speaks to this because yeah, he's saying hey, he wasn't speaking there, but he had been speaking sp- in the right place. This is all about yeah. where you speak. Yeah, you know, I think. Yeah, that he was, you know, he didn't need to say anything because he'd already had the reputation for being a guy who is, you know, who is very influential in helping people come to Christ, and so he wasn't comfortable standing up and feeling like he was bragging with everybody else in the room. And I guess that when you read the story, that's the. That's the image that it gives as it kind of goes around the room by bragging about everything they've done. Mm-hmm. He just gets up and he's like, hey, you know, I'm just going to let my reputation speak for itself. I'm not going to partake in this and just brag about stuff. Um, Those guys were all, probably all counting camp baptisms, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, as theirs, like 80 kids were baptized yeah. at camp. Yeah, it was all me. Uh, but... Um, you want to I, do another lesson real quick? Yeah, let's let's get okay. off of this. I've no, it's good. It's good. Whoa. So there's I a thunderstorm outside. Yeah. I'm pretty sure our microphone's caught that. In fact, I can see I the... So. Uh, I did. 
Yeah, the Let's sound waves on here roll. change a little bit. So we better hurry. Um, better. Maybe that was Providence. Conversion. That was the second thing that we wanted to talk about. Right. After reputation, the importance of it, um, when to speak, when not to speak. Yep. There's a lot here about conversion as well. And I, I've already said this, but it bears repeating that, you know, when we're converted, whenever we obey the gospel, there ought to be a change. This is hard for yeah. people who have been raised in the church, so to speak. Because what do you change? You're already going to church. You're already, you know, um, worshiping God. You're already studying the Bible. You're already associating with good people. You're you're already trying to be a good person. But you know, maybe it's more subtle in those cases. But at the very least, the the appreciation for salvation, the joy over being forgiven, yeah, the boldness over not having to face the wrath of God ought to be added to that person who is already starting down that road. In the Thessalonians' case, it's a lot easier to detect because they were evidently idol worshipers before yeah. Paul and the others visited that city, and they did a complete 180 turnaround from yeah. idols, which are implied dead, to serve a living God, mm-hmm. the real God. Um their example is very powerful because you see that change. Yeah. And I guess the point I'm making is when we are baptized, we ought to change. I mean, there's certain certain things that ought to be different about us. I know I've worked with a lot of parents who are trying to decide whether it's time for their children to obey the gospel. And it's kind of tough, uh, you know, because there's no set age for that, and all kids mature differently. But I know there's been numerous times where a mom or a dad has looked at their son or daughter and said, you know, after this, no more playing in church, no yeah. more drawing pictures during the Lord's Supper. Yeah. You know, just something simple like that. But it's it's reflecting this. You're going to you're going to be converted. You're going to be different. Yeah. And it's not a magical difference. It's in your heart. It's the repentance where you say, okay, I'm I'm not playing around anymore. And in the case of an idol worshiper, I'm never going to that idolatrous temple again. I'm never, you know, yeah. bowing to that false god anymore. Um, so I don't think we talk about conversion enough. We talk about yeah. baptism, right? And we say he was baptized, and that that's important. But you can yeah. be baptized and not be converted, right? You know, uh, and so I think in the, the big debate. You know that goes on about whether or not baptism is necessary. That's kind of where that gets caught up in because we get so caught up in saying it is necessary, it is necessary, it is, and we just kind of say we almost are we're close to being guilty of making baptism like the only important part or more important than repentance. Yeah, for example, I think the conversion happens in repentance. Yeah, um, at least our part of it. Yeah, you know, God God converts us, you know, from lost to saved, yeah. from dead to alive. I think um, probably the best, uh, well, at least in my experience, the thing that's helped me explain this to some younger kids, like at camp, you know, when you got a younger kid who's asking about this sort of thing, you know, I'll ta- even if they're younger, I'll take them to Romans six and read this passage about dying to self, dying to sin, mm-hmm. being alive in Christ. And that is correlated in Romans 6 to baptism. So the burial in the water, this is burial, uh, dying just as Jesus did, mm-hmm. rising out of the water, Jesus rose from the grave to a newness of life. We must also rise out of the water to a newness of life, something different. So and You can't be resurrected until you go into the grave. Right. So the newness of life is to the right-hand side of the timeline of baptism, yes. not on the left-hand side. Correct. And caught up in that, in order for that to mean anything, you know, the dunking in water, so what's the difference in baptism and, like, you know, a cannonball or just going underwater? <laughs> the different, you know, there's obviously a difference. But the big spiritual difference here is one of them is done with conversion in mind, with repentance, faith, confession, with all those things in mind. And then the other one is yes. done with yeah. just, hey, I want to be dunked in some water because everybody else is doing it. And blah, blah, blah. 
So that's or the, feeling, you know, just just pure emotion and yeah. no thought behind it. Conversion yeah. is uh, one of the best ways I've heard it explained. This is by um, old Randy, Randy Midland down in uh, Montgomery. You know, came mm-hmm. up here and did that meeting for us one year, and he said you can know that you are saved just as easily as you can know that you're married. So you can know that you're converted as easily as you can know that you're married. And he likens baptism unto, you know, the the marriage ceremony. So before you get mm-hmm. married, there's a lot of things that have taken place, you know, to build your relationship to the point where you feel like you're ready to give your life to this person and to get married. Mm-hmm. So it's not just out of the blue, you know, just just walking up to an altar and saying I do is not what makes you married. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of other things involved that bring you to that. And when you do get married, that's certainly not the end of the story. Yeah. You know, that's not like, okay, now I'm married, done. No matter what I do for the rest of my life, I'm married to this person. No. Uh, You have to, you know, every day from now on is being lived with with that as one of your motivators. Mm -hmm. You know, now I'm married, so I'm not going to just go do, you know, whatever, this or that and the other, because now I have a spouse Mm -hmm. That I'm going, not that I have to yeah, worry it's about. It's a pretty good analogy. But that I'm yeah. putting that first. That comes before me now, my spouse. Yeah. And with Jesus, how much more significant is that? Mm-hmm. You know, he comes uh, obviously even much before the spouse. So it's a really, it's a reorientation of your whole life that has to take place every day. So conversion you know, turning from this or that or the other mm-hmm. to following God. I'm really glad you brought that out from right there at the end of chapter yeah, one. Yeah, conversion, uh, sometimes just changing the terminology up is a reminder for us. So, you know, you can think yeah. about it this way. Instead of just always referring to somebody's baptism, switch that up with conversion sometimes uh, to remind yourself that, uh, you know, this isn't just getting wet, but it's getting wet for a reason. It's not or, just trying to be... You know, it's, right about and i guess it's our historical situation well but, we know, we I'm not trying to be we right react, about somebody we react to a popular doctrine that you don't have to be baptized yeah and so we we react in some ways out of necessity mm-hmm. because that that part of the gospel is not being told in other circles so we emphasize that but sometimes it, it's really hard to keep the balance behind you know what needs to be emphasized and then what has you know, been lost in the shuffle. Right. The, the important conversion is the whole thing. Now, what's in that package? Well, it's yeah. faith, of course. You you got to believe. You got to be willing to say what you believe out yeah. loud. You've you got to repent. Yeah. And uh, you do need to be baptized, and you do need to walk in newness of life. Yeah. And the there problem, are a lot of other things that yeah fit in there as well. I think the problem is when you emphasize something. By very definition of the word, you're de-emphasizing everything else almost. You know, yeah. Well, teaching and preaching is a spotlight. You know, yeah. so if you, you move the spotlight over here to the right hand side, then the left hand side gets dark for a little while, and you got to right. move it back over there before people forget about what was what was in the light a while back. And so, but when you move it back, then that part disappears. It's just back yeah. and forth. I think it's more of like when you're typing something, you put a word in bold or italics. Mm-hmm. And you're separating that word out, and you're making that one like a like almost the most important term in the sentence. And when we do that with conversion, you know, maybe we bold and italicize faith, or maybe on the other side of that, we bold and italicize baptism. And we leave the rest of them just normal. You know, in reality, we should be bold italicizing all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, but you can't. And that gives the practically speaking, you you can't really do that every time. You know, right, and I don't think Paul did in well, Paul yeah, or any he, of the other people did in it's Acts. It's a good example. You know, but some of them were you meet he people only where was they there are for their, three weeks. Yeah, you know, in Thessalonica. All right, we're out of time, so yeah, let's go through this whole routine. Uh, we have a website, <laughs> the sixty six dot net. Sixty six is a number. Yes, it is. Uh, Twitter. I would, personally speaking, I'd like to see more activity from our listeners on Twitter. All right. I mean, how about Let's do it. spreading the word a little bit? That's going to require me tweet. to be more active with our Twitter account. Well, I mean, you can say, too. at the 66 Podcast, great show today, or yeah. something like that. You know, yeah. it's not too much to ask. Nah. 
in the history of the 66 handle, we need to start. We've never Twitter had a tweet. Polls. We need to start doing Twitter polls. Twitter yeah, polls. We, yeah, we have people tweet at us. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That is true. We get several. Yeah. We need to start doing said some that. Twitter polls. Well, it's been yeah, a while. Things. Do you do a Twitter? I just can't talk about this. Do you do Twitter polls? Because I see them, I skip them. You can't? Oh, sometimes I do. Like if they're, you know, the only one, I'm probably telling myself a little bit here, Dan Lebetard show on ESPN. Sometimes I absolutely hate that show. But other times it's pretty good. <laughs> but one thing they do, I'm guessing the ESPN exec said, hey, put a couple polls up during your show, and he didn't want to do it. Because now they have like 30 polls over the course of their episode. Mm. And it's, it looks like they're just doing it to be smart aleck. Say, okay, you want us to do some polls? Well, about every five seconds, we're going to put up a new poll. Yeah. Well, look for look for stuff on Twitter. Andrew may put a poll up or something. But uh, we're going to have to, to get out of here and get out into the thunderstorm. Into the rain, yeah. And uh, we appreciate everybody listening. We're going to pick up with uh, Chapter 2 of First Thessalonians next time on the 66. Roll Tide.